Ah, good to see you again. My name is Robin Williams, and in 1971, I did my last Monty Python. And it was uh, a raid on the Tate Gallery to put bras and knickers on all the rude statues. And one of the most delightful things about the gig was Graham Chapman dressed as the Queen Mother, standing with his moustache and a pipe, waiting for a cue. And people were wandering past in the street, almost collapsing with amazement at this incredible sight. He took absolutely no notice of that. Now, I interviewed him for the science show a few years later. And he was slightly unwell. So I was making him a cup of tea. And uh, I said, do you take sugar? He said, no, I'm gay. <laughs> That's exactly what my kids did. They laughed as well. It's got no logic to it. And the most amazing thing is that that juxtaposition of what makes funny, because we're about to talk about climate and comedy, the only, well, the funny thing about comedy is you can't predict it necessarily. Uh, I have some colleagues here. Um, you probably don't know them. Um, <laughs> Rod Quantock used to be in travel. I think he used to take a dead chicken on a stick and go to various other people's posh receptions <laughs> and uh, lovely dinners. Would you please welcome Rod Quantock? <laughs> Hannah Gadsby is uh, a boxer, obviously. <laughs> really, she is, and uh, amazed, amazed. Uh, very enthusiastic one, good exercise, and uh, has appeared often with Adam Hills, despite having two legs, as far as I can see. Would you please welcome Hannah Gasby? <laughs> Andrew Denton has lots of rope, but never enough. And we miss you on telly. Now, I was talking to somebody who actually did the first ever Occam's, Occam's Razor was on this morning. And it's uh, been on for 30 and a half years. And the first two were done by somebody called Peter Farrell. And um, Peter Farrell is right-wing. We often put very, very right-wing people on our, our programmes. Because we're all very conservative in the ABC, as you would have noticed. And so I phoned him up and said, Peter Farrell, you haven't been on for 30 years. Do another talk. And I said, you're writing a book about innovation. You're head of ResMed, one of the biggest companies based in Australia and America. It, ResMed treats apnea, as you probably know. And would you do a talk for me? He said, yes, I'll talk about how climate change is a hoax. I said, well, I'm doing a science program, Peter. <laughs> and there are probably hundreds of thousands of scientists who understand climate science, and they're experts on it, and you're a world expert on snoring. <laughs> How do I present that? <laughs> he went quiet and hasn't been back in touch. So we have a number of juxtapositions in climate where an awful lot of scientists are in this world conspiracy. And um, some of it's funny, some of it's terribly sad. Rod Quantock, you've done a number of presentations over the years about climate change. And, and I want to ask you, how can comedy illuminate a subject as serious and complex as that? Easily. <laughs> OK, next question. Um, look, it's uh, just, just to give you a bit of my background, um, I probably am, I think, the only comedian in Australia, and I think I'm quite rare in the world, who actually devotes all of his comedy shows to issues around climate change, but particularly um, I'm interested in things like peak oil. Um, but to get to that point takes an awful lot of work, and uh, I spend a lot of time being a political comic, and I have the advantage that most of you don't have. I've got nothing to do during the day. 
I work for an hour or two hours at night and the rest of the time is my own. And I spend that time reading what you don't have time to read and analysing what you don't have time to analyse. And I've had people come to me at the end of a, a show about politics and, and say people say to me, I love coming to your shows every year because it, it means I don't have to read the newspapers <laughs> for a year. Um, so I, when I got involved in climate change, I. I I applied for what used to be called a Keating Fellowship uh, and Howard changed that very quickly to an Australia Council Fellowship. And I applied for it because I was broke, a, a condition which uh, lives with me constantly. And I thought, well, I've been around a while, I deserve some money. So uh, I was about to turn 60 and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll apply to them to do uh, a project about uh, the world from the day I was born. I was born in... and. <laughs> And I just look at the world, uh, where it came from and, and uh, how it got to where it was uh, contemporaneous with this application. So I did that and I, you know, I began in 1948, the Declaration of Human Rights, a division of uh, Israel and Palestine, North and South Korea. Velcro was invented in 1948, the first Holden rolled off. You know, the roots of our contemporary world are there and a lot of it's still festering today. But as I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not what you call a bright person, but I'm methodical. And I did it chronologically. And as I went through, I started to see things like the impact of chemicals in our environment. Now, I'd been aware of that, but as you march back through time and then push your way forward, these become more and more apparent. And then I hit the 1973 oil shock, when uh, the world economy collapsed through lack of oil. So I got interested in peak oil, but as I got closer and closer to uh, the day, um, I saw climate change looming and looming and looming and looming larger in discussions in the new newspapers in the media in the community at general it was you know it was there but it wasn't ultimately that important um, so I took that and I, I really knuckled down and I read everything there is to read about it and I came to the conclusion that we're all going to die okay now that's it now I have a pre uh, preconditioned um, attitude to apocalypse um, by the time I was 10, I'd seen black and white footage of the Hiroshima bomb, I'd seen black and white footage of the Holocaust, I'd seen black and white footage of uh, the uh, Japanese prisoners of war, I'd seen the worst that humanity could do to one another. And so it, it was very clear to me that uh, climate change is something we weren't going to stop because it's not in our nature to be intelligent and clever about these things. And then you throw in peak oil and you suddenly realise that the brick wall is approaching very, very quickly. So I thought, what do you do? And I thought, well, you tell people about it. That's what you do. So I did a show called Bugger the Polar Bears, This is Serious, because <laughs> people were always thinking it's about polar bears. And I did shows called The People We Should Eat First. I actually have a list of people we should eat first. And uh, when climate change really hits, I want you to remember that the person sitting in front of you is made of protein. Just keep that in mind. And as a general warning to you all, try not to look delicious. Um, I actually used to be 18 stone, but I'm trying to get less and less a source of food. But it's a lot of work to understand it. It is an immense amount of... The, the basics are simple. CO2 is a, a greenhouse gas and there's lots of it more in the atmosphere and so we're heating up. But the consequences, the flow-ons, the, uh, the shift changes in the state of our environment that can happen very, very suddenly, um, those sorts of things you've really got to study. And I got to a point where I thought, it's all over. And I thought, well, you're a comedian, what would you know? So I rang a professor at Melbourne University, one who shared in the Nobel Prize for the IPCC report, and said, can I come and have a coffee with you? And I said, we're all going to die, aren't we? And he said, yeah, we are. And I spoke to a few more, and in the end, I rang Robin Williams, because I was going to be in Sydney, I thought, he's the man who speaks to all the scientists, I'll save myself a lot of coffees that I can't afford, and go and talk to him. So I went to him and I said, look, are we all going to die? And he said, yes. So that's where I got to. And then turning that into comedy was very difficult. It took, it took me... It took me approximately two years to be able to go on and do a two-hour show about climate change. Um, but as I go on and I see that my rather naive dreams of... Have I done five minutes? My rather naive hopes, I suppose, of uh, telling people here's the problem and people will respond um, clearly hasn't worked. So I'm now in a position where I'll keep doing the comedy, um, but I don't have terribly much confidence at all. Make what I want to know, Rod... 
Give me two names of who you would eat first. Well, Tony Abbott was now... He's too chewy. I know, he's too thin. And I mentioned this to an audience and a woman put her hand up and said, stock, boil him down for stock. Because that's right, isn't it? That's what you do. You know, Gina Reinhardt, I've actually, I've put out a... (laughs) No, please. I put out a recipe book called How to Feed a Family of Four to a Family of Eight. Um, But anyway, so, anything else? All right. Sorry. Fine. Hannah, same question. (laughs) How do you use comedy to illuminate something as stark as climate change? Well, I'm assuming I'm not here because I'm an expert on climate change, as is uh, Rod. I do have all day to myself, but I... Don't put it to useful use. Um, a lot of naps, which I think is an energy-saving technique. <laughs> I think I'm doing my bit. Um, I'm here because I, I think uh, I've used comedy, uh, a lot of comedy, to make unpopular ideas palatable. Um, in the early days, one of those was making homosexuality palatable in Tasmania. Um, so it that's, worked. It worked. Yeah, I, I'm, I take all the credit. <laughs> so when, um, when, uh, when I first started doing comedy, uh, I realised, you know, I was always under the assumption that, you know, comedians are the underdogs. And then I saw that most of the comedians, and especially the successful ones, are, are white, middle-class, heterosexual men who went to private school. I love it when they get angry. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, yeah. Yeah, what? They're like the canaries. You know the world's screwed if they're angry. And um, (laughs) so I... What I came to learn very quickly is that I was not only uh, up against it in life, I was up against it in comedy. I'm not everyone's picture of what a comedian should be. And I'm not even... I don't hold true to most of the cliches of what I am as a a bigly Tasmanian lesbian with mental health issues. Um, That's an uphill struggle in life and great for comedy. (laughs) But I'm not, I don't hold true to any of the cliches, you know. Um, uh, You know, Tasmanians are simple. Uh, Lesbians are angry and don't have a sense of humour. Women are moody and irrational and emotional and can multitask. None of these things apply to me. Um, And of course, you know, uh, mental health being something that we've, you know, very quickly has come into the public consciousness, but certainly when I was first talking about it, it was still a shock that comedians were sad. Uh, Cat's out of the bag now. We've lost the element of surprise, which um, (laughs) makes it harder. But, um, you know, so I've worked a lot around these issues, taking these, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't preach to the converted. A lot of my work isn't done at these lovely festivals where you're instantly on my sides. I, I do clubs and pubs. I do, I do regional tours. And I, you know, I will follow uh, comedians who make homophobic, sexist, racist remarks. Um, and I cannot be angry to an audience who've just laughed at that. Because, A, they're not going to listen to me, they're not going to like me, and they're not going to laugh at me. And if someone's not laughing, they're not listening. Um, So part of what I think I'm really good at is making people listen to things they normally find uncomfortable. And one of my favourite things that has happened to me in my career is I was in Tasmania once, and this this bloke came up to me, and he's not my demographic. Um, He... He'd look at a lot of you and beat a lot of you up. You know, that kind of guy. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he came up to me and I felt threatened. You know, I felt physically threatened. I'm like, oh, no. And, um, <laughs> and he just came up to me, you're that piss-funny lesbian. <laughs> I'm like, I hope. Because <laughs> I don't want to disappoint you. And then he said, that stuff you do about depression, spot on. Good on you, mate. And I'm like, I don't know what I've done. (laughs) Like, it was just a really lovely moment to think that someone like that has looked at someone like me and listened. And I think that's what comedy can do in a situation like this, take an unpopular and, you know, very (laughs) 
miserable topic and make it some, you know, make it a, a conversation that is a little bit enjoyable other than just we're all going to die. It's we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is funny. Thank you. It's actually incredible how serious this bunch were when we were briefing for an hour and a half, you know, trying to... How do you do this in front of an audience, an unforgiving audience like you and us? In the middle of that conversation, Paul Willis, who's on at five, turned up with his son Chester. And they had just been to Argentina, to a cathedral. And they walked in and there was this wonderful statue of the Madonna and Jesus. And Chester, who's eight, said, look, Dad, there's Brian. <laughs> it was too. There's Andrew. Same question. Uh, well, look, my favourite definition of comedy is Mel Brooks, who said that uh, tragedy is when I cut my finger, comedy is when you walk into an open sewer and die. And I think it's <laughs> important to frame this conversation with that. I have for some years now I've been attempting to form a group of what I refer to as fundamentalist moderates and our aim is to travel the world and slaughter anyone that won't see both sides of the argument. <laughs> because it's hard not to see people of good intent and great intellect and hard work such as scientists who are working on this traduced in the way they are, to hear them referred to as millionaires, although I prefer John Stewart's description of them as thousandaires, and to see the scientific method being so thoroughly rubbished and disrespected. And it's hard not to respond to that with some degree of anger or, or some degree of sarcastic humour. Part of me tends to think that those who believe that the scientific method that has led us to understand global warming is ridiculous, should have their electricity and planes and cars taken away because clearly they don't work either. I sometimes think that Andrew Bolt should be given a holiday home on the shores of Vanuatu for a year from which to write his articles just to get him a little closer to the subject. But then I've realised that the getting angry is kind of a waste of energy. It's not useful energy and energy is the source of what we're talking about here and that the energy we should be expending on that vast group of people in the middle who are uncertain and who are looking for cues about what to think and how to act. And it's a difficult subject to get your head around because it's distant and it's abstract and it's existential. It's inviting people, as Rod and Hannah have reminded us, to attend their own funeral procession. So it doesn't tend to elicit an awful lot of cheer. And while it's easy to get people to understand that, yes, if we send Bruce Willis on a rocket, he can blow up that meteorite with a nuclear weapon, it is much harder to get them to visualise, say, Daniel Craig opening a can of whoop-ass on a thermal warning feedback loop. So, where does comedy sit in this mix? I think we tend to overstate its importance uh, quite often and the effectiveness of satire quite often. I thought the reaction to the Charlie Hebdo attacks where some people posited that the terrorists only killed these people because they were so terrified of them was ridiculously and patently nonsense. I mean, these terrorists acted with such brazen impunity. Terrified was what they were not. And I'm often reminded of Peter Cook's response when he set up the Establishment Club in London, which was a satirical club. And Peter Cook was one of the finest comic minds we've ever produced. And he was asked, what difference do you think this is going to make to British politics? And he said, well, I think it will... Uh, affect British politics in the same way as German cabaret unheated, unseated Hitler. <laughs> and I think we can overstate the value of satire and its impact greatly. However, I do think comedy, when done in a certain way, has its place. And uh, as evidence of this, those of you that saw John Oliver do that piece where he got 90, 97 climate scientists to debate three climate deniers to visually represent the actual statistics of the debate was a very effective piece of comedy because even if you were on the other side of the argument, you could sure as hell understand what he was going to say. Comedy, when it's done well, shows people ways of thinking, ways of organising their arguments, ways of critically analysing the world. It's why people like Bill Hicks and George Carlin and Lenny Bruce are still remembered and quoted and watched and listened to and read today because they didn't just tell jokes, they put together an argument and they used comedy 
to make it stick. As Hannah said, if people are laughing at you, they're listening. And people on both sides of the divide, left and right, have a universal desire to laugh and to be made laugh. However, I think the issue is, if comedy is just preaching to the choir, as we are today, hallelujah, then I think it is limited. And the question to me is, how does comedy become useful? How does it speak across the gap? How does it speak to the elephant in the room? I keep hearing climate change referred to as the elephant in the room. Well, actually, it's not the elephant in the room. It is the room. It is the room we're in. There is no other room. So how do we speak across the gap? And how do we reach that vast group of people in the middle who are looking at ways to act? So my belief is that the way to do that is to put humour together with humanity. And I'd like to talk about that as we go on. Splendid. Hannah, were you about to use your microphone? No, I just remembered I had it. <laughs> uh, it's not a shape I'm used to. So it's, Question. Um, <laughs> no, no. I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's incredibly important. Because uh, the humanity side of it, because I, I tell very personal stories. You know, I only ever tell... I I'm not a political comedian as such, but my, my comedy is very political in in its own way, so I, I do, I was just nodding, I think, to the humanity side of things mm. with my microphones. Exactly. Well, there's lots of comedy in the situation of climate science. When I go to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where most politicians from Australia haven't been, that's where they found the Keeling curve, which showed Keeling was a chap who thought, let's measure CO2. This was nearly 60 years ago. And it was going up and up and up and up and up and up and up like that. That was the first sign. He didn't know whether it made any difference. But when I go there, there are two and a half thousand scientists and they're studying different aspects of climate change, like the movement of plants, the movement of birds, the sound travelling through the ocean, the chemistry of the atmosphere, the mo you know all sorts of different clues which all point, all these various clues, in the same direction. And when I say that to some scientists, they say, well, they're all left-wing. And they mean it. <laughs> or they're after money from some strange, huge pot. I haven't seen the pot around recently, have you? No, no, the rivers of gold that flow into scientific research are very tempting if found. <laughs> but uh, they don't exist. Look, the problem here is that th this is a branch of science that runs square up against the largest um, economic um, entities in the world, the energy companies. Um, it's the denial system uh, takes a model from uh, what was developed to protect tobacco from uh, legislation. And some of the scientists around that uh, um, who are qualified and deny it are people from the Cold War. Uh, who see any form of regulation as communism. And so they're happy to fight any regulation uh, around CO2 and they want the market to solve the problem. Um, I, I found over time that um, I only preach to the converted, like that lovely woman up there with the blonde hair high. Just, uh, there she is. She couldn't get in. Shame sitting there in the sun without sunscreen. Anyway, there, there are too many people, so... <laughs> Who cares? Um, <laughs> but in, in preaching to the converted, uh, which, uh, as I say, is what I always do, nobody will buy a, uh, buy a ticket to come and hear me tell them things they don't want to hear. So I've been trying very hard to do what Andrew's been talking about. How do you reach those people who aren't engaged? They're, not, they're neither um, deniers, uh, and by the same token, they are not uh, um, outspoken advocates, but there are those people in the middle. And how do you reach them? Um, well, clearly the media is the way that you reach them and the media is impervious to this sort of thing. It still pretends there's an issue about balance in the discussion of climate change. But as I go on, I, I realise now that even the most avid supporter of uh, climate change and the need to do something is actually advocating for something that now is impossible. The people I talk to think that WOMAD will be here in 20 or 30 years' time. They think they'll be able to walk up the hill onto North Terrace and buy themselves a flat white coffee. Well, that's not the future. Um, so I'm trying now to 
find a way around painting that future for people that they can understand. And I'll, I'll use comedy to do that. And one of the things I, I found, I was giving a talk at a high school in Melbourne um, to kids about climate change. And I did that, you know, poor old polar bears and coral reefs and blah, blah, blah. Well, they'd heard it before and all that sort of thing. But it suddenly dawned on me that Tim Tams will be extinct. Oh. And when I mentioned the fact that Tim Tams will be extinct in by 2030 at, at the latest, I would think, then people's ears start to prick up. So I, I think a large part of it, whether it's comedy or not, it needs a story. It needs a connection uh, to people in their day-to-day -day individual lives. And, and things like polar bears, um, who cares? Because I've got a DVD in HD of polar bears. I don't need polar bears because I can put them on my flat plasma screen. The Herald Sun, Murdoch publication, which is the, 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 really the wall between action on climate change and inaction on climate change, had the gall to give away David Attenborough's Life on Earth DVDs. It was a nostalgia thing. Remember these? They used to exist and thanks to the Herald Sun, they no longer do. So I think we've got to, we've got to start to think about telling stories to people rather than trying to... CO2 parts per million and those sorts of things. So um, that's where I'm, I'm starting to go with, uh, I guess, the next stage of my apocalyptic uh, dream. <laughs> the Walking Dead with Tim Tams. Mm. Funny, that's funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think everybody is so sobered by Rod's... Oh, all right. Yes. But Sorry for the comedy. Going back um, to what Andrew was saying about does satire have any power, I, I suspect in a, in a lot of ways it doesn't. I, I always looked at myself as being Vera Lynn. I'm the person that entertains the troops and then sends them back out to the battlefront to keep on doing the work that they do. But I think getting two or 300 people in a room, and here we've got you know a couple of thousand people uh, indoors and outdoors, all sharing um, the same concerns is really very empowering and, and very comforting to know that you're not alone. You don't get that in your lounge room with your television, but you get it when you go out to these sorts of events. Um, and I spent a lot of time in Victoria uh, attacking the Kennett government on and off stage for a decade. They've left. Uh, yeah, I, I, I won. I won. I personally won. Nobody else got involved. But I paid a price. I got sacked from the uh, Sunday Age. I wrote for them about Kennett every week. The editor rang up and said, look, could you not write about Jeff Kennett? And I said, well, that's the only thing worth writing about. He said, could you write about how difficult it is to program your VCR? And I said, well, look, I'm really sorry. I don't have a problem doing that, and I'm happy to come around and help you. <laughs> but so I lost that job. I lost the best job I ever had at the Melbourne Zoo because Kennett wanted to make changes to the zoo which would impact on the animals and uh, I couldn't be around because I opposed that. So you pay a price, professionally you pay a price and you get uh, tucked in a corner. Uh, and my greatest gripe at the moment is the, the, the inability of the ABC um, to support satirical comedy more than it does. And I, I regret... I regret the Howard years. The, the Howard Bush era was the time when um, 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 Stephen Colbert and uh, John Stewart uh, came to prominence in America. Uh, Stephen Colbert, to me, is the greatest satirical show that I've ever seen. Um, but they thrived on, on that right-wing extremism in America, and here the ABC wouldn't touch it. And I can understand why. The political pressure on the ABC is incredible. You're um, kidding. No, it is. Where it's from? true. Oh, you're on the radio. They don't give a fuck oh, about no, the radio. No, no. <laughs> Saturday afternoon I at midday. I want to bring Andrew in. Yeah. Sorry, you I'll stop Andrew? now. I've had my it's time. It's over there. Yeah. <laughs> I think the whole question of uh, language and how you speak about this is very important. And, uh, you know, I have heard climate change now referred to as the C word, the word you're not supposed to use. And, and maybe we have to find other words for it which people will understand. Solar value signals or great big new thermal tax or something like that. Uh, that will cut through, but I think it's important. You know, I said before, you've got to speak to the gap. I think when you said you shouldn't feel alone, we're not alone. And there's a lot of other voices in this conversation which aren't really brought into the conversation. Uh, Rod and I, and I think Robin, have all read a book by a man called George Marshall called Don't Even Think About It, which is an incredibly intelligent appraisal of why this issue is not being properly communicated and, wh and where the fault lines are. And he looks quite fiercely at his own side, which is climate science, as well as the other side. And, uh, 
you know, some years ago I did a talk to the Wilderness Society where I said to them, look, if you want people to pay attention to what's happening in Tasmania in the forest, there's no point chaining yourselves to trees in your flannelette shirts because people at home are going to see it on the news and go, a bunch of fucking greenies, the typical stuff. What you want to do is chain your fridges and your washing machines to trees because people are going to go, oh, my God, they're putting their white goods in danger. This must be serious. <laughs> You want to speak in their language. And there are already people speaking this language, but they're not necessarily the people you would expect. The World Bank, who brought out a report a few years ago saying why four degrees uh, must be avoided. Military experts around the world, including the US military, now factor in climate change in terms of immigration and food security as a significant future threat. Uh, these are not the voices you would normally expect to be at the table. Insurance companies, insurance co if you want the truth about what's happening in the world, follow the money. And insurance companies are the money, and they sure as hell are factored in climate change. So I think if we want to change this conversation and make it more valuable and make it less about left versus right, I hate Andrew Bolt, blah, 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 then bring in those voices. Bring in voices that people will pay attention to. Yes, indeed. You might remember I said this probably a year ago on this stage. But I they're not funny, as Hannah just pointed out. <laughs> I did science show number one in August 1975 and uh, I interviewed a lord and he's uh, called Lord Richie Calder whose expertise was on energy. You mentioned 1973 and that was the energy crisis in 1975. We talked about the energy crisis and he said one of the things we're really concerned about is the effect of these, he didn't say fossil fuels, of, of oil and coal on the atmosphere. And we're terribly worried that there's going to be a catastrophe with, with that, that sort of effect. And we've been saying this since 1961, and here we are in 75, and still nothing's been done. Now, we then continued in a kind of ordinary way to report on climate change right up for the next few years. And then it became political suddenly. Out of the blue, somebody then sent up a, a kind of ideological rocket, and it all changed, I think, early 2000s. Godoying. And they used advertising, and of course, as you may have heard on the Science Show yesterday, I mentioned the film of the book, Merchants of Doubt, Naomi Oreskes and so on, saying exactly what you did about uh, the tobacco industry and the techniques. Now, they're terribly clever, and they're amazingly well-financed, and all they have to do is have one line, you know, like stop the boats or something like that. They're all left wing or they're all after money. And, and that, when are we going to have comedy that can counteract that kind of pithy, wonderful message? Stuff? When I'm given $10 million to mount a campaign, then we'll get it. Okay? Right. <laughs> We'll have I, a whip Crowdsourcing, let's go. Robin, I don't think comedy is the thing that counteracts that because what they're saying is meant and is perceived as serious. And serious trumps comedy. Comedy is part of that conversation, but it's not, it, it's not going to happen on its own. And so I don't think that's the thing that does it. And we all want to live in a world, as George W. Bush said, where man and fish can live together peacefully. <laughs> and the question to me is... What is it? Let's reach beyond the things that we dislike about our opponents and that they hate about us. And what is it that we have in common? One of the greatest primal drivers of civilization has been the desire to protect the next generation. I think even those who you most despise on the other side would not argue with the thought of a clean planet would be nice, food security would be good, wars not based on immigration would be excellent, and a decent planet for our children would be great. So. If we can agree on those things, and it's surely possible to do that, then how do we move from there? And this is what I was talking about with humanity. This is the ultimate human problem. This is human-made, and I believe our response to it needs to be based in humanity, emotion, as Hannah said, because when people respond with their hearts, a lot of the climate change argument is about intellect. It's about graphs and information and statistics, and they are shocking and sobering. But if you want people to act, you've got to speak to their hearts. So, for example, the demonization of scientists. Uh, I think it would be a very worthwhile thing as a response to what's been talked about, as, as the entire scientific method has been trashed and their motives are being, uh, ra uh, are being questioned. 
uh, to actually go and talk to these people as human beings and talk to them not just about the work they've done and why they do it and the passion they feel about it, but about what their doubts are as well. And I think it would be worthwhile and useful to accept the fact that the people who are most passionately committed on both sides of this argument, the activists and those who are fighting against climate change and the denialists and those who would uh, lie about it, perhaps their motives and passions come from a similar place, which is the incredible fear and the almost incomprehensible task of trying to face up to an existential threat. And in George Marshall's book, one of the interesting things he does is he goes to speak to Christian fundamentalists. And he does this because he wants to know how religions, who have been the most effective communicators and uh, instigators of mass communal action, how they've done it, what they've done. And a man he goes to speak to is Joel Hunt at the Northland Church, who says, one of the most important things we do is we have a process whereby we accept that there is doubt and uncertainty and there is backsliding in this process and we encourage people to express it and we acknowledge it. And I think it would be worthwhile for us in this conversation rather than simply demonising, and I know everything you're talking about with Naomi Orestes and the tactics are deplorable and mendacity needs to be called out where it is, but I think it would be a more worthwhile exercise rather than just launching into that pitch battle to actually try and get a broader understanding as to why these people think the way they do. Because it's not simply about they hate us. And I suspect that their fears and their desires for the planet are not that dissimilar to ours, but their ways of going about it and their reasons for attacking are the things that we object to. But if we get caught up on those, I think we're wasting valuable energy. Thank you. I think after Hannah, I'll ask for questions. I was just saying, I think that's a great television show. We put, you know, these people in with a relationship counsellor. And, uh, I mean, I'm quite serious. It was Andrew Bolt with Rod and just, come on, guys, get along. Um, it might be compelling. I tried once. It didn't work. Uh, no. <laughs> um, but, yes, I had another thought, but uh, I forgot it. Ah. In which case... I second that thought. <laughs> It's a good one. Microphones, as oh, I said. Yes, indeed. Okay. And uh, what I said yesterday, no soliloquies, just nice, straightforward, direct questions on what we've been talking about. Microphones, hands up. There's microphones down the back, yes, in the green shirt. Yeah. Good. Well, we've answered all your questions then. <laughs> See, we go. I think, the, hand. I think the conversation ended at we're all going to die, which is about five <laughs> minutes in. Yes. <laughs> Hang on, here we go. Chuck it down the end. Andrew, just uh, listening to you then, the thing that concerns me is that uh, Pine right now is saying that the education reforms that he wants to uh, pass... Um, if they don't get past, 127 research centres will be shut down and 1,700 um, science jobs go. It seems to me that it's, it's so organised to trash science. These guys aren't thinking like you think they're thinking. They're thinking differently and they're organised differently. So what are we going to do about that? Look, I think that's right and certainly the, uh, the decimation that the CSIRO is both in terms of science and in terms of the intellectual capital of this country, is, is a terrible thing. But it's no great surprise that this government would think this way. If you paid attention, we knew this was what they were going to do. As Paul Keating said, when you change the prime minister, you change the country. And how you change the country is by changing the people that sit on the boards, by changing the, the nature of the organisations that the government works for. So that is no great surprise. And this political battle will go on and on and on all our lives. Still. The best way to affect political change is to educate and inform the voting public because they are the ones that will ultimately make the decision. You're not going to stop Christopher Pine right now on his tracks, but this is what I'm talking about. You need to mount an emotional argument. You need to explain to people why this is valuable, what the value is, where the value lies. I think you need to counter the suggestion that what scientists offer us is somehow false or is highly politicised or is for personal gain. And I think that needs to be done in a more intelligent way than simply to say, 
this is outrageous, this is terrible. When we leave it in the narrow realm of politics or in the narrow realm of environmentalism, as opposed to that much broader sweep of human endeavour, then I think that is when the argument gets hard. Right now, sir, those who voted against Tony Abbott do not have the political power in this country. So I think it needs to be approached asymmetrically and more broadly than just politics. Next question. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, you mentioned, Andrew, about uh, people like Bill Hicks, and um, I've been really interested in Bill Hicks, and I think the value of laughing at ridiculousness um, is empowering, that the best way to encounter um, negative forces is to laugh at it. And I'd like uh, the panels uh, in terms of comedy and laughing at things, and especially someone following on from Bill Hicks, is about what Russell Brand's doing at the moment yeah. and what he's calling for and um, whether how relevant that is. He's calling for a revolution, isn't he? He's right. Mm, sorry. <laughs> Meet me behind the tent. 4.30. Bring your semi-automatic weapons. <laughs> I think Russell Brand's heart is in the right place, but I think his argument is frankly nonsense. He's just, he's just calling for anarchy. There's no actual thought. There's a lot of thought behind how he's got there, but there's no real thought in what he's suggesting should happen. So I'm not sure it's entirely useful, That's to be perfectly honest. That's not a place either. We're not, we don't have answers. We're just going, there's problems, there's problems, there's problems. <laughs> like, that's, all, that's, all, that's, that's where we should stop. He doesn't have the answers. Don't follow that man. Um, like, Bill Cosby thought he had answers, you know, about... Um, Yes, he did. Yeah. He honestly went around the US and tried to preach to black people how to live their life and it was their own fault. Watch, the, you know, these people don't necessarily have the answers. But I think, and this gets back to, and this is what I do like about Russell Brand and Bill Hicks and George Carlin and Rod. You know, I've seen a number of Rod's live shows, even when he was so depressed afterwards he could barely have a drink. Yeah. And, uh, and that's depressed, let me tell you, with Rod. And... Uh, I think it is about ways of thinking. And if all Russell Brand has done, and, and this is what I do applaud him for, is to show there are these sources to go to. There are ways to think about this which you may not have thought about. Then I think that is very useful. Mm. Okay, I'll go on. Hello. Um, oh. oh, there. Yes. Okay, I'm over here. Yeah. Um, I'm really concerned about the situation that you've been talking about, the fact that we're preaching to the converted, um, and... The fact that we don't have a good um, newspaper system, which is um, educational. How do we actually educate people? You said it's all very well to go out and educate people. They're not really very interested. They hear the one-liners, the that sort of thing, and I'm actually unsure quite what to do about it. Well, your, your language is kind of interesting there. Who are they that you said that? Yes. Who are they? They are not interested. Who are they? I assume you are people. Well, no, it's very okay. expensive to come here. I'm only here because I've got a free ticket. I've got, I've got nothing to say. But, um, you know, it's that attitude that there are these people that you don't understand. Like, they're just people. They are just as interested. Just, you know, they've got... You know, the, the nice thing about being middle class, you do have a lot more time and a lot less pressure to live day to day, you know, no, I know, but you also did too with the word they. Who were they? Who are they? Look, I think... Com You're ordinary. Yes. You're very ordinary. Yeah. Can we accept that we're all people? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's only one cyborg here, and I'm not going to point out who he is. Um, so I think the first instance is to educate yourself, which is what you're doing, and then you, uh, you start to educate those around you who may... And listen to those who may strongly disagree with you and try and find out why it is they disagree. What I was talking about before about look for common ground, change the conversation. Could I give you an answer on that, which uh, I actually broadcast yesterday, and there are repeats at four in the morning tomorrow and nine o'clock on Friday evening, which you can download anytime you like. And this is about art, not comedy necessarily art. And that is uh, in the Brolis Islands, the fishers who were not at all convinced about climate change were asked by a person organising art exhibitions based on photography, said, have you noticed change 
in your islands. And they all had. They hadn't thought about it particularly. And as I said yesterday, the pictures that they took, these fishers who were skeptical, showed change going on around them that they knew about. And those pictures and their notes were matched by scientists' notes and put in exhibitions, as a result of which everyone who had been deeply skeptical about climate change think differently. They looked locally, they applied what they knew, and they had a helpful person who happened to be an artist showing them how to do it. Now, you multiply that a thousand times, and it has been multiplied a thousand times around the world in various places, and that's how you make a difference. I saw Rod do a show in Melbourne some years ago where, and it was one of the most intelligent approaches I've seen to this question, where he simply explained to Melbourneites what their city would be like 20 years hence or 30 years hence with the impact of global warming. And it was in terms they could completely understand. The Melbourne Cup will still run, but it will run in July because it'll be too hot in November. The football season will be two months long. These are things that stick. Can't have a two-month-long football season. You'd be happy with that. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be quatar all the time. Now, that is a catastrophe. But No, look, I think that's right. It is... Look, my contract with an audience, not you, because you're not paying specifically to see me, you've got to... You could be anywhere. But my contract with an audience is I'm a comedian and what I choose to talk about is my own business, but my job is to um, um, honour that contract. And as I've gone along, those are the things that I've noticed that people respond to. It, it's those things that are going to change in their lives. And, and it's not the conversation isn't at that level at all. Um, and we need more and more to have that happen. And scientists have found themselves in an awkward position because they're, they're not trained to be public speakers. They're not trained to be media tarts. They find themselves in circumstances that are quite uncomfortable uh, for many of them. So th- there aren't those... Th- I mean, there are extraordinary spokesmen around the world, David Suzuki, um, people like that. But um, the scientists have struggled to, uh, to get their message across and there has to be, you know, part of that has to be a bridge which is, you know, an artist or a comedian or a playwright or whatever, um, taking their messages and uh, filtering them and uh, putting them into a format that people um, can uh, take personally with them. And it's that, there was a, uh, Andrew Bolt wrote an article um, that was about sea level rise and it was about the last IPCC report and he was sneering at it. Now, and what's the worst they can tell us that sea level will be one metre uh, higher by uh, 2100, long after we'll be dead? Now, Andrew talked about our concern for our children and our uh, children's generation. He doesn't give a fuck about his children and the future because he thinks the future will be what it is now. That's what these people are holding on to a dream that uh, is turning into a nightmare. But they they are successful. The system rewards them extraordinarily. And to have your head up Rupert Murdoch's ass is one of the greatest ways to ensure a very prosperous and successful career. And that's where he is. And so those people, he's a bright man. I mean, he's a really great. Uh, polemicist, he's a great propagandist, he's Andrew Goebbels and he's good at what he does and he gets paid very well for what he does and he's, he's um, Gina Reinhardt's toy boy um, <laughs> and he's on Channel 10. Now I could never get on Channel 10 with a program, uh, you know, broadly speaking about the issues of science and climate change, it's just not going to happen. So Anna and I were talking yesterday about something I don't quite understand which is social media and the possibility of social media uh, being used to spread this message more broadly because I think commercial media is not going to do it and the ABC, try as it might, uh, may not be able to do it either because climate change is just another issue for people. It's up there with ISIS or whatever it is today and it's up there with employment and it's up there with, you know, who's going to win My Kitchen rules. Well, one of the programs I'm proposing in the future is My Kitchen has no ingredients. (laughs) Now, if you can put it in those terms, you know, and so I think, you know, from my point of view as a comedian, that's where I'd like to take it, um, to, to take a program like Getaway 
and see where in 20, 30 years' time you can actually get away to. <laughs> What's left of Bali or the Cook Islands or these places you want to go and visit. So, uh, you know, the arts, I think, have a very powerful role to play and, and despite what many people think, comedy is the highest form of art. It, it exceeds the achievement of the Sistine Chapel when it works well. So honour and bow down before it. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for what you have given us today. Um, I would like to appeal to all the people who are here today because I think they can do something. I'm going to ask you if you have ever been to school. Okay, so you've all had a contact with a school. Some of you may not have contact with the school that you went to because you're in a different place. Um, and also to the people who have children or grandchildren, let's put you into the equation too. Go back to your schools and demand that social and economic and environmental sustainability is talked about in your programs, in your schools. Don't disconnect from the school you went to. Go back and demand it. For the Abbott government just cut the Global Education Project at the end of last year after 15 years of seeing tens of thousands of teachers around Australia and pre-service teachers in universities and global education, including um, what to do about educating young people about the, the climate change that's taking place, that's just been cut. Nothing more will happen unless you, every one of you, go back to your local schools if you can and demand that it be included by the teachers. Teachers are on board, some of them not quite sure how to do it. Give them support and show them. Demand that it be done in your schools. Thank you. And look, can I just add, um, my experience tells me that change at the federal level is impossible. The Labor Party, I mean, they brought in a carbon tax, but that wasn't going to solve our problems. It was an incredible thing to do, and I celebrated uh, with everybody when it happened. Um, but the Labor Party's not going to be the answer to these issues either. The, the area where I see it effective is at local government level. Local governments understand this. Andrew was talking a bit earlier about the insurance industries. Well, local governments on the coast of Australia know the consequences of allowing people to uh, live on a shoreline that is going to disappear and the uh, insurance costs of uh, allowing those permits to come along. Local government understands this and you can pressure them and you can make changes in your local community. And it's happening, as we found out on the panel yesterday, from Cecilia Woolford. Is that right? Yep. I wasn't here. It was here. And I, I think that's a really important point. Local environment plans uh, do allow for uh, climate change, and that's what I was saying before. I think it's important to seek out the many people in the system who aren't politicians and who aren't media megaphones, but there are many other people in the system who have a vital functioning place who actually are embracing and trying to find ways to deal with this issue. And, and to, to you, Madam, who is speaking on behalf of people, um, I, I would urge you to seek them out and let them know that you support them. Put pressure on them, as, as Rod says, put pressure on your local council. There are other voices in the room, and I think we have become, become fixated on the easy voices, the Andrew Bolts of this world and the, and, and the, the government. And now, obviously, they're very important, uh, but they won't be around forever and neither will the government after that. There are other voices in the room and we should be speaking to them and listening to them and in incorporating them into this discussion. It's and funny, in my office they call, call him Andrew Blot. Well, there's a lot of things they call him. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing, I, I mean, having heard that, really don't waste your time talking to people who don't believe. You, you can't change their minds. To, to get some concept of climate change involves, as many of you would be, you'd, you'd be people who have all your life been concerned about the loss of trees or the loss of a local creek or the building of a on a parkland. You're people who've had a, an attachment to nature and the environment which has informed your whole life. And so climate change is something you can innately accept because you've seen the impact that human beings have on the environment. But I, I would not, I would not go on stage even if I was offered the opportunity to debate Andrew Bolt. It would be a waste of my time and energy. So seek out those people who are down the track, 
they're the ones who, and part of this denial business is distraction. What, the, what uh, happened in Victoria uh, during the Kennett years were 450 individual protest groups were created in the first two or three years of the Kennett government. People protecting their primary school, people protecting their park, people protecting their jobs. Everywhere you looked, uh, he'd lit spot fires. And part of that um, is very helpful in a way because you've, you've got people dealing with a problem here, dealing with a problem there, dealing with a problem there. They're all running around with their little problems and over the top of it are these major changes like privatising electricity commissions or all these uh, shifts of wealth from the public uh, uh, to the private sector. Um, so leave, don't, really don't waste your time. I, I almost got into an argument in a car park with a climate change denier and I just I thought, I'm going to change you, I'm going to change you, I'm not leaving this car park. And then I saw that it's you should have 15, it was $15 an hour and I was up to 55 <laughs> minutes. I wasn't going to waste another $15 on no. him. So I let it go. He, I couldn't change his mind and equally he couldn't change mine. Another question, please. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I was really interested, Andrew, in what you were saying about um, having a wider discussion um, in terms of fleshing out some of the issues perhaps in some of the science, not in all of the science, and, and actually having an intelligent discussion about it. Um, that has happened in the past, but I found over the last, particularly the last 10 years or so, um, with politicians and sound bites and grabs, more and more you try and discuss things and, and show, oh, there might be some error in this, particularly in science. Um, you always discuss everything as a theory. Uh, the opponents immediately jump up and go, see, see, we were right, we were right. And there's no real space for that to be heard and to actually have that um, intelligent debate and discussion. So really asking how we actually give space to that when only sound bites are um, televised and how perhaps comedians have a role in terms of being effective communicators in getting into um, breaching that divide in terms of politics and getting into those media advisors' ears and and finding different ways to get the messages across rather than the soundbite. I strongly disagree that there is no space. Rod talked before about how uh, comedy, as with Robin's um, explanation, art can be a way, of, can provide metaphor, can provide words, a construct for, for which to put an argument. But in terms of the space, we're here right now. This is a space. Two people are a space. Right now on uh, podcasting, Serial, which you've probably heard of, five million plus listeners around the world. There's another podcast called Invisibilia, which has 10 million plus listeners. Rupert Murdoch is Rupert Murdoch, and he is what he is. But there are many, many other ways to speak and be heard. And I think it, to negate the whole question before you even start by saying there's nowhere to speak, there is public broadcasting. The commercial networks, in varying degree, will still engage with this issue. If they think it will attract eyeballs or earlobes, earlobes, <laughs> eardrums, uh, they will listen. They will pay attention. It is not a, a dead cause. It absolutely isn't. And even within the heart of uh, the Australian, who with people like uh, Graham Lloyd and so on, have run an aggressively anti-climate change line, uh, it is still not impossible, I believe, to put a counter-argument. But you've got to be clever about how you do it. So I, I, I strongly disagree that in, in a time of social media, and I'm not a fan of Twitter, I, I think that it's basically it's the Tower of Babel. It shows human beings largely at their, their worst and meanest. But I think on the broader level, things like podcasting, uh, which is getting a greater and greater audience, there is the capacity to put and listen to a much longer form argument. And interestingly, Vice, which is the cool young uh, brand of, of uh, social media, um, so much so that Murdoch's bought a little bit of it, actually. Um, they have found to their surprise, they're kind of like a more intellectual version of BuzzFeed, they found to their surprise that the most consumed product they put out are their 40 to 50 minute long documentaries. And this is all pitched to people under the age of 30. So I, I think, first of all, I would uh, encourage you never to think that people aren't willing to listen to a longer conversation. But I would absolutely urge you to look more broadly at the media landscape and see there are many spaces. Yeah, many people who've done surveys in the last uh, 25 years have found that the most requested and the most popular items on any broadcast, science and medicine, around the world. Last question coming from here, yes. I think... Oh. 
broken it. I think one of those um, spaces, like Andrew Denton says, is local community groups and the land care network and farmers groups. I live in rural Victoria and um, I can tell you lock the gate movements against gas fracking or also the, royal, uh, the rural community is royally pissed off with the rising energy prices and the behaviour of large corporations. And now is a really good moment to come in with local tradies who show them how to swap off to um, grid disconnected solar systems that are also much more useful in, in bushfires than when you are sort of at the mercy of large corporations. But I think as a general uh, message, my feeling is we don't take notice of social psychology. And social psychology was actually the underlying science of George Marshall's uh, Don't Even Think About It book. Like he looked at different um, um, principles or techniques of persuasion. E, what a yucky word persuasion is, but everybody uses it on the other side. So we might as well um, have a bit of a read uh, about social psychology and learn the different techniques and incorporate them in our comedy as well. Lock the Gate is a great example because Alan Jones, who is considered a, and is a great champion of conservative politics in this country, is one of the strongest advocates for Lock the Gate. And that is a really good example of how he has an emotional investment in that because he lives in a part of New South Wales where this is an issue. And it is a very good example of how when somebody is connected emotionally, they can transcend ideology. And that's the broader point I'm trying to make today, which is when we get locked into ideology, we don't move forward. Okay. Thank you, panel.